Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to connect with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. And to be honest with y'all, I've been pining for connection these days. Man, the last week has been an emotional roller coaster. After a long uphill battle with Alzheimer's, my ma finally took a ride on that northbound train. And if you know Alzheimer's firsthand, then you know how utterly impossible it is, both for the victims and for the loved ones. Losing my mom was devastating. And it was a relief. It was a devastating relief. The next day was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, which is always a day of celebration, commemoration, and mourning for me. In other times, in better times, I celebrate, commemorate, and mourn Dr. King in class with my students, but my classroom, that sacred space that keeps King's flame to my feet, well, it's empty these days. So I pursued another path to commemorate MLK. I invited my students, the teachers, and the families in my school community to share with me what Dr. King means to them. And then I spent the day after my mother's passing listening to hour after hour after hour of King speeches. And I weaved together the Kennedy School community meditations on King with the wise words of the good reverend himself to curate a podcast. It's kind of beautiful. I'm kind of proud of it. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It brought me some hope and some solace in these trying times. And I don't know, maybe it'll do you some good too. You know what else gave me some hope in trying times? The inauguration of the 46th president and the 49th vice president of the United States of America. Now, unmoored by the passing of my mom and buoyed by the spirit of optimism that Dr. King embodies... It could just be that I was particularly vulnerable to the symbolic sustenance of the pomp and the circumstance of it all. Either way, my wife and daughter and I, we popped the Prosecco, made a night out of it, put on a tie and everything. And I don't mind telling you people that I wept. (laughs) I wept. And I wept with a similar sense of aggrieved relief that my mom's passing wrought. You know, it's been a hell of a week, my dear Studs listeners. Hell of a week. And while I clearly have a convoluted can of complex feelings, one feeling prevails. Gratitude. Yeah, gratitude. I'm grateful for so much these days. Among the many things I'm grateful for is all the support I've been getting from this fledgling studs community. And I feel obliged to take a moment here to say publicly on the podcast what I've said privately and in person to a couple people. First, I want to say thanks to Jill and Julia over at Bear Radio Berlin. Just thanks for bouncing ideas around with me and for investing in people, most of whom seem more interesting than I am. 
and helping them to find and to pursue their voices. I think what y'all are doing at Bear Radio Berlin is beautiful, so thank you. And thanks to Berlin's finest audio engineer, Brian Trahan, for letting me use this here fancy microphone. But much more important, thanks for being here to field all my fool questions and to encourage me. It means the world to me. You mean the world to me, man. And last but certainly not least, thanks for a patron of the pod, Patrick Baker out in Kreuzberg. Thank you, Patrick, for the walks and the talks. Look, man, I don't have the pleasure of making too many new friends these days. But you, sir, you are a keeper. Thank you for your warmth, your kindness, your fellowship, and your patronage of the podcast. And if you, my dear listener, if you out there want to support our effort to create space for empathic explorations of working lives, head over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. You can get some cool rewards for a small contribution. And with your help, I might even be able to buy my own fancy microphone one day. And hey, if the time isn't right for you to donate to studs, I get it. We're good. Totally. But it would still mean a lot to me if you could subscribe or follow studs wherever you get podcasts. And maybe even tell a pal or two about the show. You might want to tell them about this episode with operating room nurse Micah Mrozinski. Mike describes how his commitment to vigilance, diligence, and detail slows the process down, earning him the reputation as an advocate for his patients and maybe a bit of a stickler. And this here stickler speaks poetically to the aesthetic quality, the elegance of the operating room on a good day. Oh, and he makes me cry. Like, kind of uncontrollably. So deal with that. I had to. Maybe it's because I got a lot going on. Maybe it's because I'm so moved by how Mike is so soft-spoken and kind and tenacious as fuck. Dude's a warrior, and he's wicked bright. So enjoy me in conversation with Micah Morozinski. So, Mike, you studied philosophy. You were pursuing a graduate degree in philosophy, and you became a registered nurse. Can you walk me along that path? The transition took you know, a few years. I came to grad school to pursue a, a doctoral degree in philosophy, and I remember realizing pretty early on that it probably wasn't going to work out, and it probably wasn't for me. It's uh, very hard to do philosophy professionally, there's more PhDs than there will ever be open positions for professional philosophers. And um, I don't think that's going to change. I think it's going to get worse. Like It seemed very limited. I wanted to be able to do more than just teach. I wanted to kind of be out in the world. So I had this feeling that it wasn't going to work out. And also this idea that I needed to figure something else out for myself. It took time to sort of feel out what I wanted to do and what was possible for me. Uh, the school that I was at had an accelerated ESN program for people who already had a bachelor's degree. And I had a tuition waiver um, because I was teaching in the graduate program. So while I was making progress in my program, I was also doing prereqs for the BSN program and then 
once I got into it, uh, completing the program. And I finished the BSN before I finished the doctoral degree and went on to be a nurse. What was it about becoming a nurse that appealed to you? I always wanted to do something uh, socially useful, like to help others. And I think the thing that appealed to me about philosophy is like the, the therapeutic quality of it. You get people the tools to start thinking about things in an orderly, systematic way, um, to think clearly, uh, to start seeing clearly, you know, their life can become much better. Uh, what I found with philosophy is often like people don't really appreciate the tools that you're giving them often because like when they're taking a philosophy course in college, it's like a prerequisite. So I had something that I was trying to give to people that I thought could make their lives better, but it wasn't really something that they wanted or needed from me at the time. That wasn't a good feeling like having to sort of justify constantly justify your existence. Like, no, what I have is important. It could really make your life better. I think nursing is uh, an area where I think people see um, the value that they're bringing to them, like very concretely. It's the antithesis of what you experienced, right? You went from a position where you felt you were giving something useful and, uh, and in a way almost necessary to help people. And they didn't see, many of them didn't see what was useful or necessary about it. And they became frustrated by it. They weren't open to it. And now you have this position where you're giving people what they need and they know in most cases that you are there to help them. Yeah. How long have you been a nurse? I've been a nurse for five years now. And you've worked in a couple of different hospitals with different populations. Can you just kind of quickly walk us through where you've been thus far? Yeah. So uh, I left nursing school and uh, got a job working in an intensive care unit. It was like a mixed uh, medical surgical ICU in a small community hospital. So we saw patients who were acutely ill with like, you know, medical problems. And then uh, patients who are critically or acutely ill with, uh, you know, like postoperatively that needed close management postoperatively. I worked there for about a year and a half and then decided I wanted to try something new and I wanted to work in a procedure area. So I transitioned over to the operating room and I've been working in operating rooms since then. I worked in a level one trauma center and then more recently I'm working in a, another small community hospital. What drew you to the operating room? I think there were push factors and pull factors. The uh, ICU was starting to affect me it's hard to take care of someone for 12 hours and possibly another 12 hours after that and possibly another 12 hours after that when uh, when it, it seems like you're doing more harm than good. Like uh, so people who are critically ill, uh, oftentimes they don't get better. And uh, there's things that we do that keep them alive, but um, they don't really derive any benefit from it. And oftentimes in those situations, someone else is making decisions for them. And um, the person who's making decisions for them 
doesn't necessarily see like how it's how it's affecting the patient like what the what the outcomes actually look like they don't maybe don't have a clear understanding of that no one has really given them a a good explanation of that i mean it often felt like um like i i wasn't really um doing much doing much good that must have been intensely taxing yeah it's uh it's hard like did you have moments where you thought perhaps i'm not cut out for nursing i i don't i don't think i thought i wasn't cut out for it i mean i i think i thought maybe i need to find another area it's just it was hard like you know watching people suffer unnecessarily and and being uh participating in that i guess is another thing like another layer to it because you're the one who's keeping them alive and you know they they might not appreciate it they might be like aware enough to not appreciate what you're doing for them mm. yeah so um i wanted to do a different area where i mean my understanding of like what uh what happens in surgery has obviously changed over time but even from the outside you're you're often working with people you're doing like elective cases you're working with people who are there to get something fixed and then hopefully go on with their lives you know and um your encounters are briefer um they're more intense but they're briefer yeah very often they go on and get better hmm. it almost seems to me like working in an ICU should not be available to nurses fresh out of university. It seems like uh, really getting thrown into the deep end. I mean, I think uh, making the transition from school to actual like professional practice, it, it's like a jump no matter what. Mm -hmm. The pressures of being a student are very different from the pressures of like, you know, being a professional. Yeah. And uh, there is like role adjustment, no matter what area you go to. I spent some time uh, in the ICU, like during uh, my training. So I sort of knew what I was in for. And I liked the, I liked the, the complexity of the patients and um, um, the technical aspects of it. But, and I, I think I've managed those well. But I think um, it just sort of got to me just being very close on a daily basis with like unnecessary suffering and uh, you know, just a lot of death. Did you have conversations with colleagues, uh, perhaps with doctors or hospital administrators trying to convince them that they were in, that they were engaging in a project that was prolonging suffering? There are often patients where, you know, they, they're trying to have uh, conversations with the family about goals of care and what is most likely the, the path this patient is going to take, you know, what kinds of recommendations they would make. They didn't really want us having those conversations. I think probably a lot of those issues could be resolved with um, better communication between, you know, families and the, you know, attending physician. It's not just a matter of like understanding factually what's going on with the patient. There's a lot of like, I mean, there's a lot of emotions involved with a loved one. 
that is like progressing towards death. And people aren't necessarily ready for that. They're not ready to hear things that you're telling them. They have a lot of feelings to work through. And in my experience, um, like many doctors aren't super great at, you know, working with those feelings and like meeting people where they're at with what they're feeling and what they're capable of processing at the time. Doing that for a, pa- for a patient and their family takes time and they don't really budget for that. Right. That's just simply not in the budget, huh? Yeah. So I would imagine that while the ICU is you know, particularly intense, surgery seems intense also. It just all, all together seems like an intense job. Can I ask how you grapple with the intensity of it all? So in terms of where I'm at now, you know, what starts out as a, you know, a routine, straightforward case can easily become very complicated and therefore more dangerous for the patient. Um, I think one thing that helps with being able to go into that environment and, you know, start the case is, um, you know, knowing that you're working with a team, knowing who's on your team, yeah. knowing who's responsible for what. Yeah. Part of how I manage, uh, like, preempt kind of disaster is thinking ahead and preparing for the worst. Like, there's a joke where I worked before where, like, sometimes you would bring stuff nearby or in the room that, like, technically you didn't need. But you would bring this equipment and have it nearby to ward off evil spirits. If it's there, then you won't use it. But if you didn't bring it, then you're going to need it. Is there a lot of gallows humor in the among nurses? The operating room isn't a patient facing patient or family facing area, so it's a restricted area to keep it clean. Like you're not constantly being observed by patients and family. And as a result, people have a tendency to talk in ways that they wouldn't talk if they were being observed by the people they're taking care of. Hmm. If this is too personal, just tell me. But I have a hard time imagining how I would strategize to deal with what I would imagine to be the emotional, the psychological strain of seeing what you must see many days. So if you developed an arsenal of strategies and tactics to keep your self healthy? The OR is kind of, is like psychologically protective in a way that something like the ICU is not because like we're constantly moving and you're, you're moving on to the next case. You you know, you have many, many relatively brief encounters with patients throughout the day. Uh, So there is at least like distraction during the day because you're moving on to the next thing and you have to focus on, you know, this other person who needs you to be like there for them 100% while they're under anesthesia. Whereas like, in a bedside, you know, intensive care context, you're sort of sitting with this patient for 12 hours 
And even if they're stable now, you're just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm. And there's like constant tension. I mean, I think there's tension in the operating room too, but it's punctuated by times when you're, you know, setting up for the next case, tearing down the previous case. So the, the sheer intensity accompanied by the interval nature of it kind of, if I'm hearing you right, protects you. It's like another thing that got to me with, with intensive care is just, again, like this, you're there for 12 hours. And if you have someone who, you know, I mean, they're critically ill, so they could go either way. So when you're sitting with them for 12 hours, even if they're doing well now, you know, you're, uh, you're waiting to see what will happen next. And you're doing that for 12 hours. It, it's a very draining, like it's exhausting to be on edge, you know, watching the telemetry monitors, checking urine output every hour, just like making sure that you have enough. Is it slowing down? It's, uh, it's very draining. Yeah. It sounds like it. What types of surgeries do you attend to most frequently these days? Where I'm at now, we do a little bit of everything. So we do obviously general surgery. So like uh, taking out appendixes, appendices, gallbladders. If someone has a bowel obstruction, we fix that. We have a robot. So we do robotic surgery, orthopedics, so joint replacements, um, some, some uh, orthopedic trauma, so like hip fractures. Vascular surgery, we'll do like AV fistulas or AV grafts, gynecological surgeries, uro- urological surgeries. But we do, a, we do a wide variety of stuff. In a lot of cases, you're seeing people like on the worst day of their life. Yeah. And... I know that you have very high empathy levels. So I guess I just kind of wonder how you draw emotional boundaries around your work life. Like, can you, you know, when the shift is over, can you shut it down? Is there such thing as shutting it down? Is there a way to not bring work home, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's a challenge, uh, you know, if, if there's a day where things don't go, you know, something didn't go particularly well, um, it's hard. It's, it's often hard for me not to ruminate about it a little bit, but you know, you, you get up and you do it again the next day. Sometimes it's even hard, like knowing what you're going to be doing in the future can sort of ruin the time you have at home. So like, where I'm at now, they'll publish the schedule a day in advance. And I used to go and look and see what I was doing. But sometimes if you know what you're doing the next day, you know, you're going to be thinking about it when you're at home. It's better just to be surprised sometimes. Mm. That's interesting. I have two kind of small questions. Um, The first is, you've mentioned that you do 12-hour shifts. I, I did in the ICU. It seems if there if there were a profession out there where there should be like really regimented like six or eight hour shifts, it would be nursing. Is there a reason why the shifts are often so long? Yeah, um, I think the justification for it 
um, from a patient care side is that handovers, so passing on information from uh, and primary responsibility for the patient from one nurse to another are actually like extremely dangerous times for patients. So especially like the more complex the patient is, it's more likely that something will get missed. Something won't get handed off. And the more frequently you hand off, there's more risk that that occurrence will, will take place. I mean, it's 12 hour shifts are long and some people like, don't like to do them. Um, but I think the, the reason is to minimize the amount of times that information about a patient and primary responsibility for their care is being passed around. Okay. Great answer. Second sort of a smaller question. You had talked about how at the end of a shift you could, if you were to be so bold, look at what you might be doing during your next shift. But how does a shift start? Where I'm at now, we, you show up, you change into your scrubs. I actually don't own any of my own scrubs, which is another nice perk of being in the OR, especially during a pandemic. Hmm. I go and get freshly laundered scrubs. <laughs> And I put those on, um, head out to our area, the actual operating room. You know, there's a, there's a morning huddle. We talk about what's going on. Who's in the huddle? So it's the nurses, uh, surgical techs, and the charge nurse, usually, and management. And they sort of tell us like glo more global issues, like higher up what's going on, and then... Um, for that day, like if there's stuff that we need to be looking out for, if there's supplies that we don't have, things that we need to watch out for just to touch base with everyone before we all go off. Because you could, you could see people at huddle and not see them until the end of the day. Um, nurses can scrub or circulate. So you could be assigned as a scrub or you could be assigned as a circulator. Can you describe what both of those things are, please? Yeah. The scrub nurse or scrub tech is the person that is at the sterile field with the, with the surgeon, making sure that they have what they need at the sterile field. So they set up the sterile field. Um, and then while the surgeon is doing the surgery, they make sure they have the instrumentation they need. The circulating nurse is the one who wheels the patient into and out of the room. So they're the kind of the last, the last, uh, the last check on the patient before they head back into the OR that, you know, this is the right patient. We're all in agreement about what's happening. The patient is appropriate for surgery. During the procedure, once the sterile field is established and the surgery is underway, the circulating nurse is kind of the mediator between this, what is sterile and what is not sterile. So sometimes people at the sterile field need supplies or they need equipment that is not sterile to be interacted with. The circulator does that. Because meanwhile, during all this, the anesthesiologist is keeping the patient alive, um, alive and paralyzed often and not feeling anything. And um, sometimes since they're doing that, they may need, help, may need help. So the circulator does that as well. They're just kind of moving around and they document everything so that everyone gets paid. <laughs> and then there's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure, make sure everyone gets their Benjamins for this endeavor, huh? Yep. Uh, can you talk a little bit about dynamics in the team? You have these team meetings in the morning. There's a cooperation, of course, but it sounds like there's probably some hierarchy involved. There are louder 
and more demurred voices. What are the collegial dynamics like? It varies from workplace to workplace, but where I'm at now, people tend to help each other out. We're part of a larger system and you know, we don't really have a direct say in what the system does. Um, what happens like the larger issues, we don't have a, a voice in those. So we just kind of are buffeted about by the winds of state in that way. As these things go, huh? Yes. Huh. Have you ever felt obliged to bark up the decision-making ladder when you feel that something is proceeding inappropriately? Yeah. Um, when there's things that seem unsafe, you know, I'll often try to bring people's attention to it and get our practice to change. Can you tell a story of that happening? Give give Just give an example. I'm in charge of my own practice. Right. I'm the one who wheels the patient into the room. So it's like on me if the patient isn't appropriate for surgery and they're in the room because like, how did they get there? Oh, well, I brought them in. Right. Um, so I take that very seriously because it should be taken seriously. And there's like the operating room is a high paid, like a fast paced environment. There is like tremendous pressure to be moving and to get onto the next case. Cause if you're not moving, you're not making money. Right. You know, my primary commitment is to the patient and I'm not going to bring a patient back if they are not appropriate for surgery. Hmm. Has that, has that caused conflict in the past? It, it does. It's like a constant source of conflict because the things I do to ensure that I'm doing the right thing take time. Like oftentimes this is like alarming to me, but oftentimes like I feel like I know more about the patient by like briefly looking over their chart than many of the other people in the room. Hmm. So I know things that others don't simply because I like took the time to look at the chart. So uh, there's tremendous pressure to, to move and safety takes time and that produces conflict. Do you feel like doing your best work, which takes time and diligence puts you in some way at odds with a hospital system which seeks to make things as fast and efficient as possible for the purposes of profit. Yes. There's, there is like constant tension, mm. like constant tension. Each case is like someone, someone has said like, this patient is ready to go. And it's like, well, like I haven't verified that. And then oftentimes it happens that they're not ready. Like it requires a level of trust that like is, like it's unacceptable to me, like because I've experienced firsthand that trust would be a, a bad decision. Hmm. The administrator would say, like that's a that's a process issue. Like we can work on the process, we can make the process better, but it's like human beings, you know. Right, and and what makes the process better is people like you who value safety over profit. And if that means slowing it down a bit to make sure you check the patient's records thoroughly, then that's what you do. I mean, the, the depressing thing is like in those like high, like fast turnover rooms, those higher paced rooms, like 
because I do what I do or the way I do what I do, like, um, they'll, they'll, they often don't put me in those because it's like, they want to move fast. So someone else, they get someone else who will do it. You know, have you become reputed in a way? Yeah. They say I'm kind of a stickler. (laughs) What a, what an honor. I like you as a stickler. So, um, I imagine that the pandemic has changed a lot about your work. And I have just a couple of pandemic-related questions. First, simply, how has the pandemic changed what you do? So in the operating room, we stopped doing elective cases during the height of the first wave. So there's still surgery going on. Um, but it's stuff that can't wait or it would like cause harm to the patient to delay it. You know, excising cancer is uh, something that wouldn't, we wouldn't make wait. During that time, we had a lot of OR staff and not a, not a lot of cases. So a lot of us got reassigned to different areas of the hospital. Some people got sent to the floor to work bedside with patients we also had like a, what they call a prone team, which what they found was that proning, patient, proning patients with COVID um, could improve their oxygenation and, you know, possibly improve their survival. Um, so they had a team of OR people go in and flip patients onto their stomachs and then back onto their backs throughout the day. Uh, we're back to doing elective cases now. And pretty much it's aside from, you know, running into um, patients who are positive for COVID, um, our, our work is pretty much the, the same. Okay. Uh, patients who come in for elective surgeries are tested before they come to the OR. Because what we're doing, especially when we intubate the patient for surgery is a um, aerosol generating procedure. So the infection risk is higher. Oh, okay. But your work, unlike the work of others, hasn't changed too profoundly. Since the state like reopened, we've been doing the same stuff. But I would say that the American public's perception of nurses and nursing has changed a bit since the pandemic. And I can't even begin to count the number of articles I've read where since the pandemic, nurses are glorified as heroes. And I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, I think the, the heroes talk is it's a rhetorical move. A lot of what nurses had to do and are still having to do is has been like necessitated by poor decisions at the top, like in terms of like managing the spread of the pandemic, making sure that like we're producing enough supplies for everyone. Like all the sacrifices were like not necessary. They were made like, they didn't have to be. Yeah. The talk of heroes sort of like papers over that. Exactly. However, you know, people who put themselves at risk to save the lives of others. Those are heroes. 
And so, whereas on one hand, you've earned the title, the glory is yours, and I want you to enjoy it. On the other hand, it's clear that that heroism wasn't necessary, right? Like speaking for myself, what I would want more than a title is just for people to have what they need, you know, and for people to be safe and well. And like we have the resources as a country to make that happen. It didn't have to be this way. Like, yes, yes. And I think that's what's frustrating about it. Part of the reason we're talking is because when I asked friends and previous guests on this podcast, who do you want to hear from most? They were saying nurses. We want to hear from nurses. These people are heroes. We want to know what they're going through. This isn't my direct experience, but I know that like people I worked with, some of them were sent to the ICU to take care of patients directly, like patients with uh, coronavirus. And like they're traumatized by it. Like they're traumatized by the whole experience. And uh, they were extremely relieved to be coming back to the OR when we reopened for elective cases. There are certain professions, soldiers, police officers, first responders, nurses, where very few people, other than those of their own ranks, really can begin to fathom what they do. And thus, a sense of solidarity emerges among those workers. Would you say that there's a sense of solidarity among you and your fellow nurses? I mean, I feel like, uh, I think nurses could do great things together. I think we're not doing everything we can because not everyone who's a nurse I don't know. For example, like, I don't know. If you look at the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics for Nurses, like what it says, it basically says that healthcare is a human right. Like, like everyone deserves healthcare regardless of their ability to pay and all this stuff. And I, there are probably plenty of professional nurses who think that's not true. Like that, that healthcare is something one earns with and pays for with money. Hmm. And if you can't pay, then it's your problem. Like, it's hard to feel solidarity under those circumstances. Yeah. You have empathy and respect, but solidarity is... uh... No, because we're often not on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's unfortunate, but it makes perfect sense. And I'd imagine that that's a, a bit of a grind to have to work with people with whom you can't feel a sense of solidarity. I would also imagine that there are uh, a lot of facets to nursing that are a bit of a grind. Can you tell me what the biggest grind of nursing is? What's the thing that you least look forward to and that you reflect upon least fondly? To make a surgery happen safely, it takes a lot of people doing their jobs and communicating and being on the same page, like making sure that that is the case often gets like pushed on to me. The, the orchestration and the coordination is probably the, the biggest grind of the job, making sure that other people did, you know, did what they were supposed to do. I mean, all of this is done for the safety of the patient and it's like necessary work, but 
it would just be so much simpler if, you know, everyone did what they were supposed to do. (laughs) I'd imagine. Do you feel like you are, or are you in fact, the, the orchestrator, the conductor? In my own way, like I don't, obviously I'm not the surgeon, I'm not the anesthesiologist, like it's their case. But a lot of the groundwork for the case, the thing, the condition for its possibility, the thing that makes it possible uh, is, is us in the room. Like I've had surgeons say like, it's been so long since they've set up a case themselves because you, like other people do it for you, that you wouldn't know how to do it if you had to do it for yourself. That must be frustrating to hear. Like if they like just come out like, oh, I don't even know if I'd be able to still do this. Like, well, maybe, maybe you should. Well, yeah, I think it shows that they, they don't understand what we do. Mm. I also had a surgeon one time say like for a, for a case, he comes in and he says, uh, you know, positioning is half the case. And like we had done all the positioning. So it's like, so what you're saying, sir, is that like we did half your work for you. <laughs> Did you say it or did you think it? No, I no. <laughs> bite, bite your tongue and tell the story on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that, that does sound like a grind to have to orchestrate that environment when the stakes are so high, but it also sounds like when it goes well, it could be really satisfying. Can you paint a picture of a satisfying work day or a satisfying case? Like when does it feel good? There is like an aesthetic quality to what goes on in the operating room because there is like a well-defined like beginning, middle and end. Like the case has, you set up for the case, you do the case and then you break the case down at the end. The patient rolls in, the patient rolls out. So it's like this well-defined hole. There's a wholeness to it. And as long as everyone is able to do what they need to do, everyone has what they need to be successful um, and the patient does well, like it's very elegant, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And so if you could have a day of doing that, then it's, you know, I would say that's pretty satisfying. It's just sort of like getting things done for people. An elegant day, getting things done for people. That, that does sound satisfying. Is it exhausting, whether it's a satisfying day or a day that's like full of one grind after another? Like, is it exhausting when you, you know, jump in your car after a shift? Oh, yeah. Sometimes you'll just like get in the car and I'm still in the work parking lot, but I'm just like sitting in my car. It's like, uh, it's uh, it's very tiring because it's, you know, it's fast paced and it's um, it's a lot of moving around. And then there's also, you know, the mental and psychological tensions. Yeah. It sounds like it can be a bit much sometimes, huh? Yup. Yup. <laughs> yeah. So in your capacity as a conductor, as an orchestrator, as a nurse, I get the sense that there are some very specific things that you do to be prepared for the worst thing in terms of taking your time and being methodical and being focused and vigilant, watching over your patients, serving them. 
But I'm left wondering what you do to keep yourself safe and sane. I mean, maybe it's because you were once my student and because of that, I have this lifelong affection for you. And I don't want to seem like too like paternalistic, hardly my role, but I just, I have this nagging concern that anyone who does what you do has to be methodical in their self-care. I mean, when I was training in the OR, like one of the things, one of the things they told us was like, you're going to hear a lot of stuff. Like it is like an intense environment and people are going to say things and do things under pressure that they may regret later. In some ways you have to just sort of like, let it be in one ear out the other in those moments. Like you can't, you can't take things too personally and you sort of need to develop a thicker skin. There's more to me than what happens in the operating room. It's really empowering to hear you say that actually that you're able to protect your boundaries, like do good, hard work, remain vigilant act benevolently and know you've done that so that you can go on with your life. That's a triumph. And I don't let my podcast guests leave without telling the story, the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure, and maybe start with the failure so that we can enjoy your triumph all the more. Probably an overarching failure as a nurse so far is just sort of not really being able to organize the people in my profession. Like, I would like to have a union. And I think nurses acting collectively could make big changes in healthcare in the U.S. If it doesn't happen, it's, you know, it's a, it's a damn shame. Yeah. I always wonder if I have, like, you know, if I'm pushing or pulling hard enough. In terms of a triumph? I hope that you leave that door open when the time is right and you want to make that your, your crusade. You'll do it splendidly. You'll know when the time is right. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I, like I said, I think it's like, it's um, in terms of like living my values. Like I think that um, the way we do healthcare in this country is very wrong. And like, I am like pretty, pretty deeply implicated in the, in the system. Like I'm not calling the shots and I'm not an architect, but I do have some agency and some power. And like, I do have the ability to connect with others and increase like our collective agency and power. And it's possible that we could turn things around. And so it's sort of like always in the back of my head, like, Am I just going to keep doing it this way until, you know, until I'm done or is something more possible? Hey, sister, I got the same thing. Look, you were talking about how you're organizing these cases and you control the pace of it. And it's your job to manage that for the health of the patient. I was thinking about my job when you were talking about that. I was thinking about how, like you, when it's done elegantly in the classroom. It's pretty magnificent. 
it's the closest thing to a sacred space I have. Yeah, it's art. It, it might be art. Like you, I pretty much just keep my eye on the cases I have, right? The classes I have, the students I have. I do know that the education system, the healthcare system, they are surely not living up to their potential and they might just well be failing. I mean, if failure is defined by not living up to potential, they're definitely failing. And like you, for various reasons, and my reasons and your reasons might be very similar, I keep a very keen eye on my cases at the expense, I suppose, of solving the institutional and systemic failures. And I guess we both live with that, huh? Yeah. For now. For now. Give me a, give me a professional triumph, whatever. There's been so many of them. You save lives, man. So pick your triumph. The ultimate triumph is like knowing that you've, you've helped someone that you've, that you really have like turned their life around or made their life less painful. And we, we, we're not, we're often not like, uh, we don't have a view into a, what happens when they leave. But, you know, every so often you do hear about people that like, you know, they wake up, they're doing well, and they're out of the hospital pretty quickly. How much does benevolence guide your motivation? Like, I, I'm there to help the patient. I'm there to help the patient through something that's like pretty dangerous and scary, maybe the most dangerous and scariest thing they've done in their life. I try to be there 100%. So I try to focus on the patient and whatever they're feeling at that time, just let them know that they're going to be safe, that we're going to be taking care of them and that we'll see them on the other side. Are you the one that has that conversation with them when you bring them from their room to the operating room? You know, as we're wheeling into the room, I try to tell them what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, um, so that there aren't any surprises. You know, you try to, if they're feeling anxious, you try to comfort them. Patients want to know that they're in good hands, that they're going to be taken care of. Um, you know, that the, the people there are looking out for them. They'll often ask me, like, are you going to be there the whole time? And sometimes I can't say that. But like, usually, yes, like I'll be with you the whole time. And um, when the patient is under anesthesia, they can't speak for themselves. They can't advocate for themselves. So when they're asleep, like I am their advocate, like I am their voice. I don't know why that's making me cry. <laughs> I mean, it's serious stuff. And it's like an extremely vulnerable time. And yeah, surgery is scary. Well, they are, uh, they're lucky to have you there for them. Your patients are lucky. Your patients are lucky. Okay. So I can't let you go uh, without recommending uh, one guest I should pursue. This could be any person or any job that you would like to hear more about. What I, what I'm interested in is like, um, uh, 
not, not necessarily like a particular job, but like the way that the work is uh, organized. So like, I'm interested in someone who is like part of a worker cooperative, like someone who doesn't have a boss and like, yeah, uh, works cooperatively with others. I'll have to think about what that could be. Yeah. I'm interested in that too. All right, Mike. Uh, well, thank you right. so much for sharing yourself with me. I'm really grateful. I'm not just grateful that you uh, made the time to speak with me, but I'm grateful for your work. I'm grateful for your willingness to engage with a system that I know you're not particularly pleased with, but you're able to be there for your patients and they're lucky to have you. And I'm lucky to have had the chance to learn from you. So thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, kids, a deep dive into the working life of a clever, committed, and compassionate nurse. I hope you learned a lot, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, subscribe. Leave a comment. Leave a like. Leave a review. And pretty please, with sugar on top. Share studs with your people. 